Augie, how much sleep did you get yesterday? How much sleep? Yeah. Enough. Not enough? Uh, no, enough. Oh, enough. You know... Yeah, just say enough. I, I know, I know from experience how hard it is to, to uh, to do the things you're doing, to study, and I tell you what. In January, he did something. Man, I, I'm I'm willing to do a number of things, but you were insane, my man. He took Hebrew. Hebrew's hard. He took Hebrew in January. How long did you? How long was that class? It was 29 days long. 29 days long. It took me two semesters, and I still don't know anything. So, I don't know. You're 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 a lunatic, man. Yeah, <laughs> you did a great job, man. I'm I'm proud of you. Well, I'm excited to be able to be here. We um, uh, the clergy, uh, we all take turns occasionally, just switching pulpits and moving around a little bit, and and uh, we want to do that during Lent. Lent is my favorite time of year. It's my absolute favorite time of year. It's this opportunity where we, where we gather together to reflect, to contemplate our own relationship with God and with one another. Um, and, it's, and it's this time of preparation that, that has this great tie back to, to history and to, to our roots of who we are. The disciples, that, that not only the 12 disciples, but all those who followed, who helped to, to make it possible for us to be sitting here today. Uh, there are all kinds of uh, people that have been attributed with sayings that, that kind of paraphrase, say, those who forget the past forsake the future. Um, and, and this is just one of those examples. When we gather together at Lent, we're reminded that, that, when, that, that the, the, the early disciples, um, they didn't have this, this 40-day period like we do, this Lenten period. They had a moment, uh, maybe two or three days of fasting before Easter until about the 4th century. We didn't have a 40-day period of Lent until about the 4th century, around the time that we codified what we call our Bible, our Holy Scriptures, around the very, very, very same time. And some people, if you, if you watched um, uh, online when we did the Ash Wednesday service, you heard me explaining that there's actually 46 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter because on Sundays... We break our fast, and it goes back to an old Jewish tradition that you never fasted on the Sabbath. You don't fast on the Sabbath because that's the Lord's Day. That's the Lord's Day, and when we gather for the Lord's Day, it's to celebrate the Lord. So some people take that as the opportunity if you gave up chocolate or sweets or something else or caffeine on Sunday, you get to cash in, baby. That's what my kids always hold on to. This year, we're studying, and we're all taking a part of a book and studying Simon Peter, a flawed but faithful disciple. He's one of my favorite people to, to, to study in, in Scripture. And what we're going to talk about today takes place around the Sea of Galilee. And so I've got a picture up here. Um, I want to show, you have that first picture? The, I want to show my very first day that I was ever in, not the, yeah, let's go to the, that one right there. This was my very first morning, the first trip I ever took to Israel. I was so excited. I was so excited to be able to be there, to walk in the Holy Land, to walk in the steps of Jesus, and that I couldn't sleep. We, we arrived in the evening, drove up to the Sea of Galilee, and, and it was dark when we got there, and, and I wanted to see uh, the Sea of Galilee and the morning sun. 
Um, and I hadn't slept all night, so I, I, I got up in my hotel room, took a picture as the sun was getting ready to come up and ran right down to the seashore. And when I got there, there was, we were on the, uh, kind of on the south side of the sea. There were these huge signs everywhere. And it simply said, no swimming. And on the south side of the sea, uh, right here along this shore, it's all rocks down there, just big jagged rocks. Well, I stood on the rocks and thought, I'm going to catch the sun as it's coming up over, over, the eastern side of, uh, over the eastern side over there. And as I'm sitting there, I'm looking at the sign. It says, no swimming, no bathing, no fishing, all these no, 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 no. And I could hear the waves lapping up against the rocks. It sounded so pretty. And I wasn't really paying attention to what was going on maybe five to ten feet below me as I was looking up the, at the sides of those mountains. And then all of a sudden I could hear voices, but they weren't behind me. I could hear them in front of me. That didn't make any sense. That's where the water was. And out of the darkness arose three bodies, naked as the day they were born. And I realized that just below me were three sets of clothes. And these folks were taking their morning swim for exercise right underneath the no swimming, no fishing, no bathing sign. That was my welcome to the Sea of Galilee and to Israel. So welcome to Israel. It's said that 80% of what we know about the life and ministry of Jesus took place around this sea, around this body of water. 80% of what you read in the Gospels really takes place along these shores. And in the, the eastern part that you see there, the next, the next uh, picture, next uh, one or two pictures actually, should be the sunrise. The, the, the side that you see there in the mountains, there are very few settlements over there. In fact, to this day, there are very few people that live around the Sea of Galilee. You would figure with it being the only real body of water they have that it would be heavily populated. But even to this day, it seems as this kind of wilderness area much like it was in the time of Jesus. In fact, the only city that's continued to be inhabited since the time of Jesus is the city that I'm sitting in right now, Tiberias. There are little, little dotted communities, kibitzes all around. But on the eastern side, much like it was in Jesus' time, there are very few people who live over there. That was when we read Jesus talking about going to the other side. That is the other side. What you're looking at right there is the other side. You can drive all around the lake, and, and it's quite a beautiful uh, scene to see. But this is the area that Peter and Andrew and James and John and at least 11 of the 12 disciples grew up around. Andrew and Peter grew up, if you, if you were to see off to the left on the very northern side of the lake, in, in, a, in, a, in a place called Bethsaida, Right? Um, town of the hunter it has different kinds of different interpretations. But I want to talk a little bit about Peter and how he came to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, last week, um, Bailey and I did the same thing in the traditional service. We talked a little bit about the calling of the first disciples. You can read that in Luke 5, 1 through 11, the calling of the very first disciples. Whenever Jesus is walking along the seashore, he turns to, uh, to Peter and he tells Peter to go and take his boat out into the shallow area. In this passage, it takes place right after Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, which is on the very northwest part of the lake. This beautiful natural amphitheater that, 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 that reverberates people's voices. It's, it becomes a, a very natural and, and easy area for somebody to be able to speak from without any kind of amplification. 
After he, after he preaches a sermon on the mount and he, and he feeds the multitudes, he walks back down, asks Peter to get in the boat and go out to the shallow so he can continue to teach. And then whenever he's done, he walks off and he says, and they go out and they fish and they get a, a large haul of fish. They come back in and he says, why don't you drop your nets and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And they do. So last week, we would have talked a little bit about some of the circumstances that led to the disciples deciding to, to follow Jesus. I mean, obviously, they knew who the guy was. Prior to the calling of the first disciple, Jesus has already been enacting miracles. And it's a small area. Communities talked with one another. They knew about the, 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 the first miracles of the turning of water into wine. They knew that people were coming to him for counsel. They knew that they were coming to him for healing already. They were paying attention to this. Andrew probably was one of John the Baptist's disciples that whenever Jesus was baptized and John the Baptist turned and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, Andrew was probably one of the disciples that heard John the Baptist's proclamation and decided then that he had seen the Messiah and went right back to tell his brother Peter about it. So whenever Jesus begins to walk along and says, Follow me, these are men that have been primed and ready. But it wasn't just because of the events with John the Baptist. These were men that from the time they were little on up, their whole community had been taught to be on the lookout for the Messiah. They were, they were preparing for this for a long time. The prophet Isaiah had been foretelling this for over 700 years. Let that sink in just a little bit. Think about when we make plans. We make plans maybe for a summer vacation, and we can hardly wait for the summer vacation to come. Isaiah was making plans and preparing people for 700 years. You want to talk about long-term planning. So every young child, everybody who grew up in Jewish society was waiting for the Messiah to come. They were prepped. They knew the signs to be paying attention to. And now all of a sudden, Andrew and Peter and several others believe this is the one we've been waiting for. So there's a calling, and they follow. Andrew, Peter, James, and John become what we call the inner circle of the 12 disciples. In every list, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, every listing of the 12 disciples, those are always the first four disciples listed. And Peter is always the very first. Every list, check it in your Bible. Well, the next story I guess I'd pay attention to then when it comes to, to Peter and the disciples would be what we call a calming. There was a calling, now we have a calming. Because many of them in their lives have these storms. These, they, they, they have turmoil in their lives. We know what that's like, don't we? They have things that are uncomfortable in their life. For many of them, it wasn't of their own doing. They were an oppressed people. They were people that were, were being um, hammered on. They've, they've been conquered over and over and over again. Generations of their relatives have been, have been uh, oppressed people, and they're tired of it. They want some hope. They want some glimmer of hope, something that they can hold on to in the future. So we read in, in, in the fourth chapter of Mark about the, 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 the event whenever they're coming across, and they're going across to the other side yet again. And oftentimes when we read the other side, it's not just that those, those mountains. The other side also represented 
the folks who weren't Jewish. The Jewish folks all lived on the western side of the Sea of Galilee. The Gentile folks lived on the other side. Anyway, they're in the storm. They, they, they're in the boat, and they find themselves in the storm. And where's Jesus? He's down on the bow of this boat, 25, 27 feet long, and he's sleeping, taking a nap. And the disciples are convinced the guy's a lunatic. Either that or he's just a thrill seeker, something like that. And we hear the amazing story whenever the disciples, in their fear, in their absolute terror, they wake him up and say, Master, aren't you afraid that we're going to die? What are you going to do? And he simply tells the seas to be quiet, be still, settle down. So the disciples were first called, and then they were calmed. How many times in our life do we need to be calmed? And how many times is it of our own doing? So I don't even know if this story really fits in here, but it's a funny story, and I love to tell it. Because sometimes I think we get ourselves into predicaments, into situations that, well, you couldn't even make them up. There was a news story. It was in a newspaper. I, I have the clipping in my office. I can't remember what newspaper it came out of. And it told about a man. He and his wife would, well, it wasn't like all the rest of our marriages. Sometimes they disagreed with one another, you know, not like the rest of us, right? And so he, uh, he was really into building motorcycles. They had this front room that he didn't really feel like his wife was using that much, so he decided it was cold outside and cold in the garage, and so he would build this motorcycle in this front room, right where his wife really enjoyed that. And so he had parts and tools all over the place, all kinds of engine fluids and all kinds of things all over. And he was finishing up this motorcycle. He was so excited that he finally got it done. He wanted to start it up in the house because he wanted to see the fruits of his labors. And so as he jumped on that big old hog for the first time to fire it up, he goes and, and kickstarts, and didn't realize he had the bike in gear. And the bike went right through the front picture window, glass shattered everywhere. He fell down and just was, he was cut up and banged up all over the place. His wife, with a little bit of a snicker, called 911 and kept thinking, well, he's getting what he, what he deserves for, for not paying attention and, and doing this in our house anyways. But... They called 911. The ambulance comes and picks him up, and she explains what happens to the paramedics. They load him onto the gurney and take him off to the hospital. Now, with a little bit of delight, she was, she was kind of thinking, well, you know, he earned what he got. But she decided she'd start cleaning up the house a little bit. And as she picked up all the broken pieces of glass and broken window things, she realized that there were some fluids there, and she didn't know what to do with them. So she walked in and just dumped some of them in the hallway toilet. Didn't think much of it. Well, eventually, the gentleman got to come home from the hospital, and he was bandaged up and banged up, not feeling so well, wasn't walking so well. And uh, in the middle of the night, he got up to, to use a restroom. Well, the man was also a smoker, and so he had his cigarette in his mouth. It's a true story. It's in the paper. I, I'm, I'm telling you. He ha he's having a cigarette, and he's there, and he decides to put the cigarette out in the toilet. Lo and behold, it seems that his wife did not flush the toilet when she dumped the fluids down there. And whenever he dropped the cigarette in the toilet, it blew him backwards through the door into the, uh, the opposing wall. 
His wife heard this loud commotion, came running out to see her husband um, laying against the wall, all banged up from the explosion and the toilet completely destroyed. She called 911 again, and it was the same paramedics who showed up the second time. And having to explain this story to the paramedics, um, it, it was hard because she laughed through the entire thing. How many times, now maybe we may have gotten ourselves in that kind of a circumstance, but how many times have the storms of our life been of our own doing? And can you imagine that poor guy having to explain that to his boss at work? Sir, I can't come in today. What happened? Well, I don't want to tell you. Peter is present at this calling and of this calming of his life. The storms of our life sometimes cause us to have a tendency to hunker down. The boat represents for us that place of security and safety. Whenever the, the disciples are in the boat, that's the place that they know. That's their comfort zone. They're familiar with the boat. But having to step out of that becomes something that, that takes us out of our comfort zone. In the Sea of Galilee, much like when we read um, in the Old Testament about times in the wilderness, or even Jesus' time in the wilderness for 40 days early on in his ministry, the wilderness is where we learn. We all seek to get out of the wilderness. We all seek to want to get out of the struggles and problems of our life. And I get that. I want to get out of the struggles of my life, too. I've got one going on right now. I can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I just want to be done. But the truth of the matter is, the lessons that we learn the best are the ones we find in the wilderness. And the lessons the disciples learn the best in their context are there on the sea. The boat is a place of comfort, but they're being called out of their comfort zone. And so, we find ourselves in the passage that we read today, the 14th chapter of Matthew. The disciples have been called. The storms of their life have been calmed. They've witnessed Jesus do amazing things. They've been a part of his ministry. And now they see Jesus walking on water. When we find this passage in the 14th chapter of Matthew, oftentimes we, we read it with kind of an intonation, even though the Scripture writers don't give us any kind of a, a reason or understanding of the intonation in which it was written. We read it in some ways to think, silly Peter. I mean, look, he's calling the Lord out. Right? What does he say whenever they realize that it's not a ghost walking across the water, they, they realize it's Jesus? Peter turns and says, well, Lord, if it's you, then command me to come out and walk with you. One simple response Jesus gives, come. We read that with a certain intonation. It's almost like Peter is daring Jesus. But I don't think that's the way we ought to read it. See, I think at this point, Peter has become amazing at his, in his trust of Jesus. I think he's become well aware of who Jesus is and wants to be part of his endeavors in the world. What we read with Peter, even though he's brash and lacking in some of the, the civil norms that we might think uh, you'd want for somebody who's going to help lead this brand new uh, kingdom-building endeavor, we see this trust in the Savior that leads to an undying faith. 
Whenever Peter questions Jesus, he's turning him to say, let me come with you. Command me to come out. Let me be a part of your work. So that maybe the intonation is a little bit different than Jesus says, come. I've got you. Peter is the only one in the boat of all the disciples who's willing to push beyond those boundaries, who's willing to go outside the comfort zone of that boat, that safety, that thing they know so well. How many of us are willing to be the pioneers, or how many of us instead would rather watch somebody else be the forerunner, and we're willing to lay back and say, you go first, I got your back. I got you. I'm right behind you. I got you. Peter demonstrates a willingness to be the first one called. And then what happens whenever Peter encounters the winds and the storms yet again? His fear gets the best of him. He begins to sink. And he knows to turn to Jesus to rescue him yet again. Lord, help me. He knows to whom to turn. The story we read in Matthew 14 becomes an example for the rest of the disciples over and over and over again. And almost without exception, Peter is the forerunner in all of this. He's the one willing to step outside those comfortable areas. He's the one that's willing to, to push beyond the boundaries. He's the one who's willing to take the risk. And he's the one who always turns to Jesus again and says, Lord, I, I did it again. Help me out yet again. I think it's this kind of attitude that Peter demonstrates early on in their time together that turns Jesus on to him and says, Peter, upon you I will build my church. I need people who are willing to push beyond the boundaries. I need people who are willing to trust and have faith. I need people who are willing to love with abandonment. I need people who are willing whenever they fall short, to reach out to me and say, Lord, rescue me yet again. So what are those areas that we struggle with? What is our boat? What is our comfort zone? Where is it that we're not willing to push through? When we gather for communion, in the Word is community. They have one another to lean on. Not just our relationship with God, but one another. This ought to be the absolute safest place for any of us to fail. The absolute safest place for us to make a mistake. The church ought to be the place that when we fall short of the glory of God, it shouldn't be one person feeling ostracized, but rather the entire body of Christ reaching over, dusting us off, and saying, that's all right, we will do better next time, and we'll be by your side.
So as we get ready to gather for communion, we remember that Peter acted as a forerunner, not only for those original 12, but really what would take place later on. And we are the result of people who are willing to push through boundaries, who are willing to get out of the boat, who are willing to take chances and risks, knowing that they might fall short. And when they did, knowing who to turn to, Lord, rescue me yet again.